At the end of Parshas Bahalotzcha, we have the story of Miriam and Aaron who spoke about Moshe. They had a criticism of Moshe Rabbeinu, something to do with the Ishakushis. We've discussed this in the past, a very, very obscure passage. Who is the Ishakushis? We know of Moshe's wife, Tzipora, daughter of Yisro. Is that the Kushis? Is the Kushis somebody else? Some say it was, in, it was uh, some kind of other princess he married from Kush. Some say it was a reference to Tzipora. What was, what was the, the slander? Some say it was that he had separated from Tzipora because of his position as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a Navi on such a superlative level. Some say they had complaints about his intermarriage with, this, with, with, uh, with his wife. Whatever it was, they had something to say, something negative to say about his conduct, his personal life, his isha kushis. The, the language of the psukim is interesting. It begins by saying, Batidaber, which is Lashon Yachid. It then says that they both spoke, Miriam ve'aharon. But the next pasuk says, Vayomru, they said. Is it only Moshe? We're Nevi'im as well. So initially the sin seems to be laid at, at both their feet. It says later, Hashem said, Vayomer Hashem pisom el Moshe ve'el aharon. Ve'el Miriam, he spoke to all three of them. He said, Shimun Odvarei, Hashem explained to them why they were wrong. He explained to them who Moshe Rabbeinu was. And then it says, then it says, Vayicharaf Hashem bam, Hashem was angry at them, at both of them apparently. And then it says, Ve'anon sarmi al ha'ohel v'hinei Miriam etzeraz kasholik. For some reason, Miriam is the one who's punished, not Aaron. A very uh, odd thing. The Pesukim don't really give any indication as to why it was Miriam and not Aaron. Aaron intercedes with Moshe, please pray for her. Moshe does. Kel no Hashem says she's in disgrace. She'll have to be in disgrace for fourteen day, uh, seven days. That's what happened. Miriam was, Miriam was punished. She had saras. She, she, she had to be outside the machna for seven days. They waited for her, and then they continued their travels. This story, again, we're not going to get into, we've done this in the past, we're not going to get into the details of what exactly the Lashon Hara was and why, what Hashem's reprimand was. He explained the uniqueness of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy. It was qualitatively different from the prophecy of all the other prophets. We're not going to get into the whole story exactly what their error was, what, what their misconception of Moshe was, how Hashem corrected them. We'll just uh, suffice here with the broad outlines of the story that they were guilty of some kind of slander of Moshe, and Hashem was upset at them. Indeed, in Parshas Kiseitze, there, the, there, there's a pair of psukim. Hashem says, "Hishamer benega hatzeras l'shmar maod v'lasos kolosher kolosher yoru eskamak kohanim halaviim kasher tzibisim tishmu lasos." Carefully keep the rules of nega tzeras, and then it says, "Zachar esasherasah Hashem alokachal Miriam b'derek b'teiskami mitzrayim." Remember what Hashem did to Miriam in this week's parsha. The connection is made by the Midrash. Rashi brings it, the Rishonim bring it. The connection is that, as Chazal famously tell us, Tzaras is a punishment for Lashon Hara, as happened to Miriam, as the general idea of Tzaras, Chazal tell us this, remember what happened to Miriam, remember Tzaras, remember the, the idea of Tzaras in general, avoid Lashon Hara, remember what happened to Miriam, and that will, uh, should keep you away from Lashon Hara. The Ramban Ramban actually writes that uh, over there in Kiseitze, this is actually a mitzvah sasei mamash. This mitzvah of remember what happened to Miriam is an actual positive commandment, like Zachar Yom HaShabbos Likadisho, which is Kiddush. The recitation of Kiddush is a, is a mitzvah, mitzvah daraisa. 
remember remember the Shabbos, meaning don't just not just remember that it's Shabbos, be aware and follow the laws, but formally remember, verbally remember the Shabbos. Also, Ramban says, remember the, the exodus from Egypt, remember what Amalek did. That, of course, is the mitzvah of Parsha Zachar, the mitzvah of remembering Amalek. That's why we read Parsha Zachar once a year. There's actually a Magan Avram who asks, why, don't, why didn't Chazal Institute that we read the Parsha of Miriam, much as we read Parsha Zachar? Parsha Zachar is a big deal. We, we make a big deal out of it. Read it from Sefer Torah, with Aminian, and so on. Why don't we do the same thing for Miriam? The Ramban's, the, anyway, the Ramban's position is that remembering what happened to Miriam is a bona fide mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to remember the, the, the Avera of Lashon Hara that she committed and the punishment, the Onish HaGadol that Hashem did to her. And, and, and her sin wasn't that egregious. She spoke about her brother, who she, she loved. She loved as herself. And she didn't embarrass him. It was a private conversation, a, a private, discreet conversation. And nevertheless, it was considered a, a grave sin, and she was punished for it. And certainly, we should remember uh, to avoid Lashon Hara. The Chavetz Chaim, in his famous introduction to his Laws of Lashon Hara, the Chavetz Chaim famously writes that there are 31 separate averis that a person can violate by relating or listening to Lashon Hara. Not all of them apply in every case. A, l- a little while back, we discussed Losikam and Lositar, taking revenge and bearing grudges. Those are two of them. But one of the Chavetz Chaim's many averis that you violate is the mitzvah of remembering what happened to Miriam. If you, he says, if you're telling Lashon Hara, you apparently are not uh, remembering what happened to Miriam. And if you do and you disobey anyway, that, that's certainly a violation of God's will. Remember what happened to Miriam. How can it be, the, the Farshim explained, that such a terrible aver of Lashon Hara is not even mentioned. The Ramban says, Echi tochen. How is it conceivable that Lashon Hara, which is tantamount to spilling blood, and there's no explicit love, or even a, even a lava bamaklala say, this is the Pasuk, remember what happened to Miriam, this is the Torah's commandment to, uh, to avoid Lashon Hara, remember what happened to Miriam, and not just remember as an abstract fact, but remember as a way of avoiding Lashon Hara. Ramban concedes, he's saying something somewhat uh, groundbreaking. He says, this is, he, he believes this is one of the 613 mitzvahs. He says, the, the Gaonic uh, compiler of the first of the list of the 613 did not count it. He forgot it. Everyone who followed him forgot it as well, including the Rambam. Ramban agrees, he's saying something uh, innovative, concedes, he's saying something innovative that's unprecedented. Ramban is convinced this is true, though, that remembering what happened to Miriam is the, is the mitzvah of avoiding Lashon Hara, and it's a terribly important mitzvah. Again, Rambam does not count it as, a, Rambam does not count it as one of the 613 mitzvahs, but Rambam accepts the idea as well, if not as a formal mitzvah. Rambam, in the end of his halachas of Tumas Teras, so the Rambam has a, a well-known stylistic flourish that at the end of every many sets of halachas, he ends with something exhortatory, inspirational, agadic. He ends by charging you to understand the importance of the halachas and the, the lofty spiritual stature you should strive for, and so on. So he writes at the end of Hilchas Teras that, that he brings the idea of Chazal, that Teras, that, that, that at least Teras of garments and houses, is a nason, is an osin pele, it was a miracle, and, and it was, as Chazal say, it was to admonish them against Lashon Hara, and he goes on, and he says that this is what the Torah meant when it says, those psukim and kiseitze, he shamer b'nega and remember what Hashem did to Miriam. 
Uh, I'm quoting a lot from stuff that didn't make it into the handouts. I had a limited space on the handouts, so uh, when we get to, the, get to the next section, you'll have more of the material there in the handouts, but in the meantime, this is just from my personal notes. Remember what happened to Miriam. She spoke about her brother, that the Ramban is echoing this language, that, that, her, that, that she was actually his, 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 she was his older sister, and she raised him, and she risked her life to save him, and she, and she just made a mistake. She didn't understand his Madreg of Nevoah. She wasn't out to, uh, to criticize him. She just thought he was a regular Navi. She didn't fully understand his, his unique Madreg of Nevoah. Certainly, he says, Rishayim HaTipshim, the, the foolish uh, evildoers who speak uh, terrible, egregious Lashon Hara. And therefore, anyone who wants to do the right thing will avoid Lashon Hara, remember what happened to Miriam, and so on. Moshe Rabbeinu, in addition to being Miriam's younger brother and so on, Moshe Rabbeinu was, of course, also a public figure, a quintessential public figure. He was the... He was the unparalleled leader of the, of the Jewish people, Lokam Navi Yisrael Kemosha Od. He was involved in numerous uh, political or you know, arguments with, with the Jewish people, Korach, and a couple of parashiyos, the Meraglim, various cases where they wanted to stone Moshe or rebel or throw off his authority, bring him back to, bring him, go back to Mitzrayim. Moshe is very much what we would call a public figure. What I want to discuss tonight for the duration of our talk is the question of Lashon Hara as it applies to public figures. We live in a democratic society. We live in a society, particularly in the United States, the, Western, the modern Western world in general. The United States in particular is famous for its, for its uh, strong commitment to free speech. You know, it goes back and forth. There are, there, are, there are different political attitudes as to how far it should go. But the bottom line is, broadly speaking, the United States is famous for its commitment to free speech. We don't have notions of hate crime in this country. We have uh, truth as an absolute defense against, uh, against, against libel and slander. We don't have the notion of a right to be forgotten. All, all these are things that Europeans, Europeans have much weaker free speech protections. For better or for worse, we can argue, we can, we, can, we can debate which way is better. But the point is, the United States, objectively, is famous for its uh, very strong free speech protection, going back to the First Amendment. In general, though, modern democracy, certainly in the United States, but even, even other Western democracies with, with their weaker free speech protection, very much believe that in some notion of freedom of the press, which, of course, originated in, the, in a political concern. It, it, it originated in, in the belief that the government had to be challenged by the media, that certainly in a democracy it was crucial for the electorate to be able to discuss openly the, the merits of their leaders, the merits, the pros and cons of their leaders, and obviously it emerged, for, today free speech encompasses non-political speech as well, but obviously, historically, the, the, the constitutional bedrock notion of free speech was established because the way democracy was supposed to work was by the people having the ability to make, and to make uh, educated uh, decisions, to make informed decisions about their leaders, and it was necessary to be able to speak openly about said leaders, otherwise uh, democracy wouldn't be practical. The question is, what is the halacha about, again, the Torah does not envision democracy. The Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu certainly, there was nothing democratic about it. Hashem designated him. Uh, the Torah anticipates a monarchy in general, not a democracy. We've spoken on other occasions about whether the Torah has room for democracy. There are precedents in post-biblical sources for democracy. The Rashbam we've talked about who says that even in a monarchy, the in a certain general sense, the, the legitimacy of the, 
of the government derived from some kind of implicit consent of the governed. We discussed him with the medieval period, the Maram of Rattenberg, medieval Ashkenaz. The, the notion was established that local, communal, municipal government should be a democratic process, at least, you know, again, not fully democratic. It was reserved more for taxpayers and the wealthy, but the basic idea was that there was some element of democracy. So, there, so, so the Torah definitely has some room for democracy, but again, the classic forms of government, Som Tasim Alech the government we encounter in Tanakh, in, in Chumash, in, in Shoftim, in Sefer Malachim, in Shmuel, is of course not democratic. So the question is, how does it, what is the Torah's attitude toward Lashon Hara on public figures? Is there any dispensation? Do we treat public figures any differently than we do private figures? Lashon Hara is a grave prohibition, as we just saw in the Rambam and the Ramban. So how, how does Lashon Hara apply? Is, is there anything different in the application of Lashon Hara to public figures as opposed to private figures? Now in the law, again, American law, just to contrast, we discussed how the entire First Amendment is, 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 is based, is not, not specific to public figures, but it's based on a concern that democracy needs, needs to enable free speech. Moreover, in a, one of the most famous constitutional decisions of the 20th century, there, there, the, 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 the Supreme Court established the rule that public, when you say things about public figures, the standards, uh, to, the standard that, that, you, that you would have to meet to be sued for libel, in American law, you can, you can pretty much say whatever you want as long as it's true. If it's not true, then that's, uh, that's defamation. That's libel, slander, defamation. You can't do that. However, even though you can't defame anybody, a private citizen or a public figure, in a very famous Supreme Court case, New York Times v. Sullivan, the Supreme Court established that the, that, that, the, the, that the standards that have to be met to sue to sue for, for a public figure, to sue for libel, are higher and greater than they are for a private, for a private person. The Supreme Court said it was crucial for democracy to be, able to, uh, to be able to speak about public figures. As Justice Brennan wrote, the general proposition that freedom of expression upon public questions is secured by the First Amendment has long been settled by our decisions, etc., etc. The constitutional safeguard was fashioned to assure unfettered interchange of ideas for the bringing about of political and social changes desired by the people, and so on and so forth. And therefore, the court decided that, when you, that in, order to, in, order to enable the, in order to enable robust discussion, especially of public figures, they had to make it more difficult to sue for libel. So the court established the, the criterion of absolute malice. The, the actual case was that the, this, is the, this is the issue that was at the heart of the... Palin versus New York Times case recently, Sarah Palin, she sued them for libel. The issue was, even, if, even though the Times in both these cases, both in Sullivan and in Palin, admitted that it had made mistakes, factual mistakes, the, so normally under American law you can sue, if someone says something false about you, you can sue for libel. So the, what Sullivan established and what the judge ruled in Palin as well was that you have to meet, for, when, when you're speaking about a public figure, you have to meet a very high standard of, abs- of actual malice, which means that you either made statements that, were, that you knew to be false or that you exhibited a, an utter disregard for whether they were for whether they were true or not, either knowledge that it was false or with rec- reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. That was, that's a very high bar to meet. That's why the Times won in Sullivan. That's why the judge threw out Palin's case as well, because even though it was not denied that the Times had published factually inaccurate statements, it doesn't matter. Unless, they can, unless, unless the plaintiff can show actual malice, they can't, uh, they can't prevail. 
In halacha, as we said, halacha does not have this notion in general that truth is an absolute defense against Lashon Hara. Halacha does not allow Lashon Hara even when it's true. That's one of the core points the Chavetz Chaim demonstrates conclusively that halacha says it's worse if it's false. If it's false, it's called Moti Shemra, which is even worse. But halacha definitely does have a, an Avera of Lashon Hara, even if it's true. Although, as we've discussed in other contexts, in terms of damages, then, uh, then there are posts who say that you're more limited in your ability to collect damages if it's true. But certainly the Avera involved, the crime involved, there's no question, I don't think anyone disagrees, that Lashon Hara applies even, the Avera of Lashon Hara applies even if the things you're saying are true. However, so the question I want to deal with tonight is, just like Lahabdul in a different context, American law has a notion that when it comes to public figures, there, not, only does it have, not only does it have to be false, there's an even higher standard that you have to meet actual malice. Is there any kind of you know, roughly analogous thing? Does the halacha recognize in any way that we need to have more leeway to discuss public figures that in order for democracy to function, in order for modern society to function, is there any dispensation, is there any allowance made for the fact that somebody is a public figure? So this is not something that we find in earlier postkim. In the 20th century, in the last few decades, we find a number of analyses by various Rabbanim who have, who have considered this question of how does Lashon Hara apply to public figures? Can we report on them in the news? Can we read reports on them in the news? Can we gossip about them to our friends? Can we, uh, can we spread information about them? What is the halacha of Lashon Hara as applied to uh, public figures? So just to, get, just, just to get this out of the way before we start, the, the Chavetz Chaim literally wrote the book on Lashon Hara. He wrote an entire sefer on Lashon Hara, both a halachic section of hundreds, dozens of hundreds of pages of closely uh, detailed halachic analyses, as well, halachic analysis, as well as uh, hashkafic sections about how terrible Lashon Hara is. There are, those, uh, there are those on the left more who pushed back against the Chavetz Chaim, who argued that he halachicized a, a topic which had previously been left to the, in the realm of Musr. Lashon Hara used to be seen, there's no Shulchan Aruch on Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara used to be left as, used to be treated as more of a Muster type of topic. And the Chavetz Chaim tried to uh, write a rigorous treatment of it. Some have argued that that was an innovation, that that was a deviation from the way Lashon Hara had previously been treated. Uh, Dr. Benny Brown, I think, is the, the, famous, or the famous academic uh, originator of that argument that the Chavetz Chaim halachicized Lashon Hara. There's a, I, I'm, not, I'm not prepared to fully enter into the debate. There is some truth to it. Obviously, the Chavetz Chaim wrote, managed to write an entire Shulchan Aruch on Lashon Hara that had never been done before. On the other hand, it, it is clear that Lashon Hara was treated as a grave sin. It was more than just you know, Musr, it was more than just Hasidus. Lashon Hara was treated as a terrible Avera by earlier authorities. On the other hand, the, again, on the, on the, on the not Chavetz Chaim side, there is the notion we find in other poskim, both before and after the Chavetz Chaim, that Lashon Hara is really treated fundamentally differently from, let's say, meat and milk or muktzah and Shabbos. Muktzah, Basar Brachala, we have numerous precisely specified rules. If, if you want to know, can I do this on Shabbos? Can I eat this food? Uh, so we can tell you, look it up. You know, it, 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 you know, get a book on Basar Brachala, get a book on Muktzah, learn it well. Obviously, not, not, every, not every layman is going to know the answer to every question. And sometimes you may need to consult a rav. But in principle, it's, it's, it, these halachas are accessible. One can, one can study them, one can look them up, and one can feel somewhat confident that he understands the laws of Basar Brachalov and, and, and Moksa. 
When it comes to Lashon Hara, it's fundamentally different. Very, very often the guidance you get is an expert row should be consulted. It's very difficult to precisely specify what's Asur and what's Mutter. Many posts can have said, ultimately, it's somewhat subjective, that we look to your, your state of mind, we look, we look to see whether you mean well, that what you're doing is, is motivated by, uh, by constructive and positive goals as opposed to negative goals. Chavetz Chaim himself agrees that intention is important, but the Chavetz Chaim try then adds all kinds of other technical rules. Other posts can focus more on the subjective factor: what is your motivation? Are you doing this in a high-minded way? So uh, there is, I think, some room for debate as to how much lashon hara can be fully halachicized or not. But anyway, we're discussing, broadly speaking, the general question: Is lashon hara on public figures? Is it treated the same as lashon hara on? Ordinary Lashon Hara on individuals, or is there any basis, is there any uh, fundamental basis for treating Lashon Hara differently when it comes to public figures? There are different kinds of public figures, of course. There are elected officials, governmental officials, unelected governmental officials. There are people who are in informal positions of influence, Gedolei Torah in the the Orthodox world, celebrities, today we call them influencers, people who are people who have uh, formal or informal influence over others. There are, you know, there, there are all kinds of people who can be considered, the, in, in the law, the, the, there are doctrines of what they call involuntary public figures, which, which, which have developed as well in the wake of Sullivan, where the court created this idea of a public figure. It became necessary to define what is a public figure, so later cases discuss that. So obviously in halacha as well, we're going to have to distinguish between different kinds of public figures, but broadly speaking, the question is, does halacha have any... Is there any basis for treating Lashon Hara with regard to public figures differently from Lashon Hara as applied to individuals? We'll begin by quoting a passage from the Chazarnish. This is in a letter he wrote, not in one of his halachic works. The, the, the context would be, it would be great to know the exact context. I couldn't quite decipher it from the letter. He had apparently been engaged in conversation with, uh, with an associate where he had expressed some criticism of, uh, of some kind of Adam Gadol, some kind of Talmud Chacham. The Chazanish says that subsequently he felt some anxiety. He was worried that he had committed the grave sin of Lashon Har. He says, the truth is, in my opinion in general, he says, criticism of rabbinic figures under appropriate circumstances should not be considered Lashon Har. He says, in principle, it shouldn't be. And the Chazanish has a famous, much quoted line. He says, Ki Hashem. Those who follow the Torah, those who follow the ways of the Torah, it's important for them to know It's important for them to know the true character of Gedolei Torah. If it's permitted, he said, to speak Lashon Hara about a professional, this doctor is competent, this doctor is not competent, this plumber does a good job, this plumber does not do a good job. It is in general, he says, permitted to, to, to rate, you know, at least again, whether it's permitted to post public uh, attacks on people's uh, business, maybe, maybe not, but certainly if someone asks you, I need a recommendation for a plumber, I'm thinking of hiring so-and-so, is that a good decision? If you know it's not, you're supposed to tell them not. You're, you're supposed to warn people that you may regret hiring this person, he's not competent, he's not honest, whatever he is. So the Chazan says, of course you can do that, he says, if that's mutter, he says, to someone, again, not just, for, not just to vent your spleen and to take revenge on him, but, but for necessity, if someone has a need to know, is this professional someone I should entrust my, my business to, and certainly, he says, of course, you can tell him. So certainly, someone who's Tarasu Nasu, he says, so certainly it, it, we, we, have to, we have to be able to rate his character to those who follow the Torah and want to know, is this, is this Talmud Chacham someone I should, 
I should accept, someone I should follow. It's important to know, he says, because knowing about the Chachmei Hadar, knowing Libam Umidasam, their character, their, their personalities, he says, Hainan Gufei Torah, that's Torah. It's important that the public has a need to know. So the Chazanish says, in general, he says, speaking criticism of a, of a, of a, of a Gadol B'Torah who has influence, who's a public figure in some sense, is permitted because the public, the, those who follow Torah, and need to know in whom to place their trust and whom they can rely, have to know the true character of various leaders. However, the Chazanish says, it's a dangerous business. It's fraught, he says. It needs Zahiris Yisera. If any details are inaccurate, that's Chatz V'Shalom Mokti Shemra, Chacham. So in principle, the Chazanish says that there is some kind of general dispensation to speak about speak, again, constructively, even if it's something negative, to, to warn people about a problem with, uh, with a certain Adam Gadol. However, he says it's a very dangerous business because accuracy is crucial and the stakes are very high because he's a Talmud Chacham. So in principle, though, the Chazanish says that there is something important to the, the, that, that there is an important uh, principle here that the public does have a need to know about the character of Torah leaders of Gedele Torah. Dr. Benny Brown himself also wrote, uh, wrote a biography of the Chazanish, which, was, which uh, raised the hackles of some in more traditionalist circles as, uh, you know, as serious non-hagiographical biographies sometimes do. He, he wrote things about the Chazanish, which disturbed some people. He wrote that he had, had some type of uh, crisis of faith in his youth, not, not heresy, but he wasn't sure, wasn't sure about his place in the Haredi world, and he wasn't sure about devoting his life to Torah. So Dr. Brown, apparently, I didn't read his book, but apparently he wrote things about the Chazanish, which displeased some who, uh, who wanted a more uh, univocal portrayal of him as a, as a figure of uh, epic proportions. And Brown defended himself, among other things, by quoting this line of the Chazanish himself. He says that it's important for people to know the, the, the true character of the Gidele Torah. And this is an old discussion. We've discussed this in the past about biography, about uh, hagiography versus biography. Is, is it important to write uh, honest biographies of Gidele Torah? Is it not important? Should we write... Uh, you know, one-dimensional biographies focusing only on their only on their best point. Should we focus? Should we give a more rounded picture? So that's a general discussion we've discussed in, in the past. But the Chazanish has this line where he says that there is a need to know the public, those who uh, those who are machzik in Torah, those who follow Torah and follow Torah leaders. It is important for them to know the the character of Gedolei Torah because it's no different. He says from people from the from the public who hires uh, contractors, who hires professionals to know the status of various professionals. Again, there are rules. Accuracy certainly is paramount, and it's not, the information shouldn't just be spouted willy-nilly. It should be, it should be kind of limited or channeled to those who have a genuine need to know, not, not just those who want to gossip. But in principle, this is what the Chazanish says, that, uh, that there is a need to know. In general, in Lashon Hara, this falls under perhaps the most uh, famous and important ex- exception to the Avera of Lashon Hara, and that is the exception of, of Toel, that Lashon Hara is not prohibited when there is some benefit or some constructive reason for doing it. This is, of course, we discussed previously the story of Gedalia ben Achikam, the, the story of some Gedalia, where they reported to him that uh, Yishmael ben Netanya, another Jew he trusted, that, that he had been, uh, that he had accepted, that, that he was a paid, he, he was an agent of a foreign power to assassinate Gedalia, and Gedalia needed to be careful to, uh, to, 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 keep, to keep guards around when this Yishmael came to him. Gedalia was trusting, naive apparently. He refused to believe these ill reports that he was a foreign agent uh, out to assassinate him. 
He did not uh, take appropriate security precautions. And he, was, he was therefore assassinated by Yishmael. Terrible tragedy for Klal Yisrael. The Gemara shockingly goes so far as to, as to sort of blame the victim. It, it, it reads the Psukim and says he was blamed for the massacre of dozens of Jews who were killed by Yishmael on that occasion. He wasn't the only victim. There were dozens of Jews who were killed. It says he killed them. The Pasuk uses language that it was Gedalia who killed them. It wasn't Gedalia. Gedalia was murdered along with the rest of them. It's his fault. It was his duty as the leader to have give, taken seriously the, the allegations that Yishmael was an assassin. He didn't, and he's blamed for the massacre of all his, all his fellow Jews. So that's Latoelis. A person is obligated to take Lashon Hara seriously, to, to, to listen to it, not, not to fully believe it, but to at least consider the possibility that it's true. In general, Lashon Hara Latoelis is the is the most, probably the most important and exception to the laws of Lashon Hara. There's a, um, there's a wickedly funny piece by, in the, by the Sefer Pischei Tshuva, not the regular Pischei Tshuva on Yeridea and Ebenezer, there's a Pischei Tshuva on Arachayim, written by a 19th century rabbi, uh, an anthology of different uh, achronim on the Shulchan Aruch, he has his own opinions as well. He writes there that, he says, this is before the Chavetz Chaim, he writes there that the Bali Musr talk about uh, the terrible, terrible sin of Lashon Hara, he says, in my opinion, he says, is an even more, ter- even, an even more terrible sin than too much Lashon Hara is not enough Lashon Hara, he says. An even more terrible sin than people saying things when they shouldn't is people not saying things when they should. People who say, I'm not getting involved, it's not my business, uh, I'll just, why, why, why do I have to stick my neck out? You have to stick your neck out. If a Jew is going to come to harm, speak up, it's your duty, he says. That's an even more serious uh, Problem than than uh, than not speak than speaking when you shouldn't. So the so so again the, the that's the that's the exception of Latoelis when when there's something constructive when there's a constructive reason for speaking you have to do it and this is what the Chazanish is saying essentially this is the first major major argument for the need probably the most straightforward argument and most uh, direct argument for a major dispensation for lashon hara about public figures in that. By definition, the way our democratic system is set up, speaking about public figures is often, often going to be letoelis. If a politician did something wrong in his personal life, in his professional, in, in his uh, public life, I have to know about it. I have to know whether I should vote for him or not. I have to convince others not to vote for him, you know, whatever it is. So again, if you just want to gossip, if you just like the salacious gossip and bashing the other side, maybe not. But assuming that there's something constructive here, assuming that you genuinely need to know who to vote for, and you're going to say, I'm not voting for a crook. Or you want to, maybe if you want to help convince others not to vote for somebody by, 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 by exposing more of what this person did. So that, that is one major argument, one very straightforward argument, that Lush and Haran public figures will often fall into the category of toelis. Not always. Obviously, there are going to be cases where you're just doing it out of malice, out of... Uh, out of scoring points and out of uh, you know, the, the, the desire to stick it to the other side. But so that's obviously that, so you, we, as always with Toelis, we have to ask, you know, what is your motive? Do you have a genuinely constructive motive? But that, but, but, but that is, a, is a very powerful doctrine which could explain, and various contemporary thinkers have used this specifically to, to justify Lashon Hara, to justify different kinds of Lashon Hara in modern contexts on the grounds of, of, a, of an expanded and a broad interpretation of Latoelis. I saw in the Chuvas Mara Habazak, they have a case there where they were asked, question came out of Taipei, Taiwan, I'm not sure who was asking the Shaila from Taiwan, but uh, someone asked these rabbis in Israel, Shaila, there are 
there are those in charge of a public archive, Archeon Siburi. And they have some kind of, they have documents there, and some of the documents contain Lashon Hara, they contain negative information about people. The more common example is a newspaper, obviously, but for some reason the, the question here was about an archive, a public archive, in which there were documents that were, had negative information about people, so we allowed to include these documents in our archive. So their basic answer was that the purpose of this archive is as a public service. Whatever this archive was, it served some kind of public, that's usually what archives are for. They're, they're usually, because it's you know, the, the noble ideal that information, information serves the public good. So optimistically, assuming that this archive serves the public good, either for, uh, either for a, a, a public good, a communal good, or for a scientific good, Therefore, he says, it is included in the Hetra of Toelis, and they discuss this at some length. They go on, however, and they say, if it's clear that a certain document, there's no Toelis whatsoever, it's something petty and unimportant, that is, uh, that is in no way, uh, public has no genuine interest, or, or he says the authenticity of it is in doubt, then, don't, then, then that you shouldn't publicize, he says, or, or take out some of the negative bits. You can also omit names sometimes. There's no Lashon Hara if you can... If you can anonymize the data, as we say today, of course, today they argue that anonymized data doesn't stay anonymized. You know, with big data and machine learning and other techniques, they can often de-anonymize data. So I'm not sure how much I would trust the, 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 those who run an archive to actually successfully keep details anonymous. But all right. But the, but the, the, the basic hetzer, this is the first broad hetzer that Postkim have said with regard to public figures, with regard to information in the public interest in general, that there's a hetzer of Toelis. Isn't there a matter of opinion about what is important information and what is, you know, like irrelevant? Because, like, you know, what you're saying with this example, with this archive, well, Obviously, somebody might have thought, well, even though this is like maybe considered petty, they thought that it was important information concerning the person's background or whatever. I mean, like, isn't there something of, of a bias or like a, a person's opinion that sort of can shade whether it's really appropriate or inappropriate? So I would agree with your basic point that it, it, it is a difficult, difficult, difficult question. It, it's, not easily, it's not easy to objectively and rigorously define what is considered of the public interest. As a matter of fact, I, I, I meant what I mentioned earlier when I was discussing the, the general question of whether truth is a defense against uh, damages for defamation in halacha. There's a fascinating machlokis, achronim. If someone committed a crime when he was young, as a teenager, he's shoplifting or is engaged in some kind of sexual impropriety as a young man, and he, you know, he sowed his wild oats and he, he grew up and he's been an upstanding citizen for 30 years. Now he's a middle-aged, sober-minded person and uh, whatever indiscretions of his youth uh, haven't been repeated as far as we know. So is it legitimate? So, so there are, there are chuvas in the postgame. If someone dug up this kind of uh, sorted information from someone's past and publicized it, can he be sued for defamation? So again, I said before, truth is generally, a, in American law, truth is a defense against, uh, truth is an absolute defense against these things. However, in halacha, it's not, it's certainly not error of Lashon Hara, and you can even sue for damages in some cases, even if it's true. So some posts can say, even if it's true, in halacha, truth is only a defense against defamation if there's some public value in the information. So for example, if he's a mamzer, people have to know he's a mamzer because they can't marry him. But, or if he's a crook, they have to know he's a crook because they don't want to do business with him. But if it's a youthful indiscretion and we believe that it's not going to be repeated, 
then it's almost like the European notion of the right to be forgotten. The Europeans have this notion that they, they force Wikipedia to scrub things out. They force newspapers to, once the fellow has paid his debt to society, they say it's no longer relevant, he's rehabilitated. They make you, they make you literally remove the information from, uh, from the public record. So some posts have said, he's been a solid citizen for 30 years. What does it matter that when he was a teenager, he, uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he was less than fully formed? Other posts can say no. They say that, if someone committed crimes, I have the right to know it. The fact that he hasn't, the fact that I have no record of a crime for the last 10 years, well, if he's someone, we had, we had the Kavanaugh hearings where he was accused of doing terrible things when he was a teenager in prep school or whatever. So, so some people might say that's what teenagers do. Some people might say that, even if it was true, some people might say, uh, no, if, if someone did that, I, I don't want him on the high court of the land. So yes, so, so, so this is actually a machlokas here. In this specific example of the, of the young men who... Uh, committed sexual improprieties or, or theft. Some postmen have said, it happened a long time ago, it's, it's, it's not current. Other postmen have said, no, I have the right to know. If, if, if this is what this person does, I have the right to know. So yes, postmen themselves disagree sometimes as to whether certain types of information, whether based on the, the distance in the past or other reasons, are important. And you're right. It, 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 is, it is a very difficult practical question to, to, to define rigorously what is and you also mentioned the word bias, that uh, in politics everything becomes biased and it, it can easily become very messy very quickly to decide what's relevant, what's not. You know, different things Trump did or didn't do, you know, e- even the ones that are, that are matters of fact, his supporters will say they're not relevant. Other people will say, yes, they are relevant. The things that Biden did or didn't do, that Hunter Biden did or didn't do, all these things. Obviously, uh, what team you're on is going to have a, a bias as to how seriously you take them, the, even if things are true, the, are they relevant or they're not relevant? So yes, your point is a good one, and, and I don't really have a real answer, but in principle, at least, the, the, this is an idea that posts can say that, that, that information, and again, like, th- th- these are modern, kind of modern postkim, liberal postkim, who, who to have the general belief in civil society, who believe that a public archive of public information is in general a good thing. Some might take a more uh, restrictive attitude toward the public good, and not think that that's part of the argument between the U.S. and Europe on these questions about you know, the right to be forgotten or other, other, other free speech things. The U.S. feels that the U.S. places a very, very high value on free speech and other countries uh, believe that other values. So yes, these are points about people which people can disagree. And yeah, that's true. So just briefly, I, I want to cover, we're getting a little bit late, I want to cover just several of the other doctrines posts can give for treating public figures differently. So one of them, there are posts can say that it's actually surprisingly unclear in Hilchus Lashonara. If something is generally known, once something, has, once something has been published by the papers, it's already out there, if, if we go ahead and talk about it further, gossip about it and talk about it and tell our spouses about it and friends about it and so on, is there any, is there any Lashon Hara left once something is widely known in the world? Chavetayim himself apparently is not entirely clear on this. He has numerous statements uh, coming down in different directions on this. In some places, he just seems to take for granted that once something is generally known, We've had cases in the Jewish world as well. We have people who committed uh, severe, terrible financial crimes, sexual abuse cases. There was a sensational one not that long ago, a few months ago. So there are cases where... So there are two questions here. The newspaper that first published it, and then, which may not have been religious, may not have been listening to the Torah, and then there's further repeating it and talking about it. So once something is widely known, there are posts who say once something is... Pretty much the cat's out of the bag. It is, it, it's spreading. It's, it, there's no hope of, uh, of suppressing it and putting it back in the bag. The, so there are posts who say that there's no ifser in continuing to discuss it. But again, obviously that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't permit the, the first paper that actually broke the story and published it. In cases where there are 100 reporters who all saw it and then 
you know, you can assume that someone's going to report it. Maybe that's different, but certainly if there's a scoop or if a reporter has a, has a, wants to do investigative reporting and un- uncover something interesting, then already that would not be a hetter because if it's, if it's really a, if it's really a, if really a new story he's breaking, you wouldn't have that hetter. But once something was widely known, then there are postkim who say that there's that there's no prohibition in in discussing it further. A related idea. A related idea, Rabbi Gil Student discusses this, is that this is a common question people have also. If someone does something in public in a way, in a manner which indicates that he's not ashamed of it, so the candidate himself talks about doing this, or uh, you know, you know, something like if, you know, rioters in the Capitol, if they're, they're, they're January 6th, if they do it and they're proud of it and they post pictures of it on their Instagram feeds, they're obviously not you know, ashamed of it. They think it was the right thing to do and they're proud of it. So if someone does something in public, I, I used to have this question in yeshiva a lot. We, we, yeshiva students, we used to debate this. If, if, if someone says a speech, give, delivers a, a talk, a share, a schmooze, and says something which I think is outrageous, and I want to say, do you know what so-and-so just said? I cannot believe he took this position. And I, I'm obviously very critical of this position. Now, if I really think that his position is, uh, does not do him credit, maybe that's Lashonara. On the other hand, He's proud of it. He just gave the speech in front of 500 people. He would say it again. He, he, he feels it's the right thing to do. He disagrees with me. I disagree with him, whatever it is. So is that Lashon Hara? Or do you say if he's willing to go on record in public and is proud of what he's doing, I have no, uh, then, then there's no issue of Lashon Hara. So Gil Student proposes this idea that at least with, that he distinguishes between an act which a politician would do that it's something that he tried to hide, something that he did in the dark of night, you know, a sexual misdeed or uh, something that he tried to get away with and hope nobody would catch him or before he became famous and so on. So things like that, the, the argument could be that that may indeed be Lashonara. On the other hand, something he would do and he's proud of, like the examples I gave, something he would do in public that he talks about himself, he mentions it in his stump speech, that I did this, I did that. So a student argues that in such cases, uh, that's another hetter to at least publicize those things which he's, which he's proud of, which he does publicly, which he's not ashamed of, there would be an additional hetter. Again, that, that, that's a fairly limited hetter. Much, much of what we consider news and political reporting involves trying to dig up the things the politicians don't want you to know, trying to dig up the things that they're trying to uh, hope you don't notice or cover up or downplay or, and so on. But the uh, so, so, so student is arguing that you know, the hetter of Toelis, he certainly concedes, is a powerful hetter. The hetter of uh, public things, he says, is, is debatable because there are, it, it's very, very, you think such a basic halacha should be clear, but the, with all the Chavetz Chaim's efforts, it is yet not entirely clear whether something which is widely reported, whether that's subject to the laws of Lashon Hara or not, student thinks that it's not quite a slam dunk. So student proposes this other hetter that, uh, that, that the hetter is... That's something he does publicly, you can, you can report, but uh, not necessarily something he does privately, which again is, is useful to know that, but it's far from a, far from a fully satisfying uh, framework for reporting on, on public figures. If you really can't report things that aren't publicly known, that obviously places a, uh, a, a, a very strong limit on what you can, what you can talk about. Uh, in, in kind of, that still leaves uh, ma- major daylight between the halachic attitudes of Lashon Hara and, the, and, and modern ones. So I'm going to close with speaking, with speaking about one final, one final approach. This is the subject of a long, carefully argued article in Truman, originally published by Rabbi Meir Brully. Not actually familiar with the figure. I don't even know how to pronounce his name properly. But he has a long, uh, very carefully ar- argued argument in Truman 
for a, another doctrine, and this is perhaps the most powerful, the most broad-ranging doctrine in, in, in some ways for speaking Lashon Har about public figures. He argues that this, again, this, this refers to a voluntary public figure, so to speak, someone who deliberately chooses to uh, throw his hat into the ring and run for public office, not an involuntary public figure, but with regard to voluntary public figures, he argues that for better or for worse, the modern system of, of government, of media, the modern system of, uh, of public life is founded on the, on the assumption that sunlight is the best disinfectant and transparency is, uh, is crucial. Anyone who enters into this system, anyone who decides to participate in the system, knows the rules, agrees to play by the rules, and therefore is accepting, is waiving his right to uh, have the protections of Lashon Hara applied to him. There are a lot of chidushim involved. There are a lot of uh, there, there are a lot of assumptions you have to make. You have to you have to make the assumption that there really is such a tacit uh, waiver of lashon hara. You have to assume a person has the right to waive lashon hara that it is waivable in the first place. There are a number of different uh, assumptions that he has to make. He provides he tries to pro- tries to provide as much as possible precedence for all these assumptions. But he argues that this is a, a powerful reason that anyone who participates in a modern system, if that system is not quite like Dintara, he waives the rights the Torah would give him in exchange for those that are provided by modern society. So, of course, he says, papers would still be limited to what modern society is granting, both in terms of the law and in terms of codes of professional ethics. You know, that, do newspapers have codes of professional ethics? Obviously, the old-school papers do, or at least profess to. The new media, not so much. You know, the blogs, the Reddit, you know, and so on. Twitter, maybe don't have as much in the sense of codes of professional ethics, but the this is another very powerful idea. There's an implicit waiver when you enter into public life, willingly, that you agree to subject yourself to the rules of public life as, as they are practiced in our society. Again, it's a big chiddush because it involves making a lot of assumptions, both halachic assumptions and assumptions. There are precedents for it. Dr. Itamar Varhaftig, another leading Mishpat Every scholar, is uncomfortable with this. He says, you know, we have a Torah and the Torah has norms, and to just simply say that modern society, there's a general waiver of all the Torah's norms in favor of the modern norms. Not even clear that you can waive it, he says. He, he's not so happy with this whole approach. He says, uh, he pushes back on a few of these points, and he says, L'siyum, he says, I return to what I said at the beginning. It's true, he says, we live in the country and we participate. Uh, he believes in the state of Israel as a, as a noble endeavor. Whether we do it out of love, he says, or out of necessity, we, we do. We are part of modern society, he says. However, he says, we cannot agree. We can't accept norms that are fundamentally anti-Torah, he says. If these, if these norms are antithetical to the Torah's notion of discretion and Lashon we can't just accept them. We believe, he says, where we, the, the, the religious Zionists, we believe that it's possible to run a state, a modern state, based on halacha, he says. And we don't believe that we have to simply simply abandon halacha and just say modern norms, everyone participates, everything's fine. Not so simple to say that. I'll just mention one brief example that supports this notion of norms we mentioned years ago, the whole idea of an appellate system, an appellate based in where you can appeal a based in decision. According to classic halacha, you can't do that. According to classic halacha, the, the, the original dayanim have the right to say you have to respect our decision, you have to respect the covenant of our chachma, and you shouldn't be challenging us. Yet, the modern Israeli system does have an appeal system for based in, endorsed and supported by many Gidele Torah, including Haredim, Rav Yashiv, and others have said this. 
Tzitzeliezer points out that one of the arguments in favor is that any Dayan who participates in the system and knows he can be appealed is tacitly accepting, I know I can be appealed, according to halacha, I have the right to have my honor respected, but since I participate in the modern system, which has an appellate system, I'm implicitly accepting that I'm going to be appealed sometimes. So that's what Rabbi Broly is saying about Lashon Hara, when a politician enters, throws his, ring in, throws his hat into the ring, he's accepting that he'll be treated according to the norms of modern society, but it's debatable. It's, it's a huge step. It's a rejection of uh, ancient uh, fundamental norms of the Torah about Lashon Hara, and that's what Dr. Rabbi Dr. Varhafting pushes back on. He says it's not so simple to just disregard the fundamental rules of Lashon Hara just to say, oh, it's a modern norm and we all sign up for it.